Hello and welcome to Full Dusty Jacket, a literary podcast for gentlemen. My name is Sam and I am joined by my podcasting partner, old college friend, and quite frankly, the most uh, prolific reader of gentlemen's literature I have ever met. And gentlemen's literature is not uh, nudie magazines. I just realized how that came out. My friend, Sean. Sean, how are you today? Sam, thank you for that uh, gracious introduction. And thank you for clarifying that as well on, on my part. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about this podcast because nobody's ever heard it before. People don't know what it is. Um, little backstory here. I make another podcast with my good friend Steve about movies. It's called the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast, Shameless Plug. And Sean is one of our three uh, devoted listeners to that podcast. And, you know, I'm, I'm primarily a movie guy. I... Uh, for anyone who's listening to this and knows me, knows that, you know, I love movies. Um, and secondary on that list is I do read a lot of books, but nobody reads more books than you read. And one day, Sean, you know, came to me with the idea. He said he wanted to do a podcast and he wanted to do one basically kind of like Hidden Gems movie podcast, but for books. And I thought it was a great idea. I read enough nowhere near as much as Sean reads. Um, and I figured, you know, not only would it be fun to talk about uh, some literature, uh, that people maybe don't know about, but also by doing the podcast, it would force me to read even more to keep up with you, Sean. Does that sound about correct? Yeah, I, we we tossed a couple ideas around. I think it was like wrestling, and then yeah, yeah. I this just, started off by the way as a wrestling podcast. <laughs> yeah, oh, that would have been something. I just don't even watch enough, but yeah, I read a lot. Um, I tend to knock out maybe two, three books a week, depending on you know the length and the subject matter. But I figured that. Other than me just shouting into the void on a book review site of, you know, where you want your opinions out, I figured I'd talk to my buddy Sam and see if I can't get him to expand his horizons and allow him to kind of give me new material to read as well, step out of my comfort zone. Yeah, my horizons are definitely uh, mostly closed. And, you know, it's it's funny um, because basically I pretty much at this point in my life, mainly read um, nonfiction, mostly around history. And when I do read fiction, it's almost entirely historical fiction. So that's yeah. very much where my interests lie. And I know that you're a big literature guy. So I'm probably... Oh, no. I mean, I, I read the weird stuff now. I've gotten... I'm I've sure read, you do. I've, <laughs> I've been through all the classics. Like, I've read the stupid long books that any English professor would assign you. But now I'm getting into the real murky waters. You have to find it yourself and just random yeah, authors. Look, just don't ask me to read the Elder Protocols of Zion, okay? Uh, maybe for like a Christmas special? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe never. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. But yeah, my tastes skew definitely more towards uh, the eclectic, like the new weird kind of stuff. Uh, but it also has like, it's, you know, I still like a good, well-written story. I mean, are you reading anything currently now, Sam? I am. Uh, it's kind of funny you mentioned that. I'm reading a very classic piece of literature. I'm reading War and Peace. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, no, it's funny, it, I was going to uh, say, your, your eclectic taste, it only, I think I can only give credit to people who have eclectic taste once they've been through all the classics and what I would consider conform, what you might consider conformist literature. I, I think that anyone who reads or watch, whether it's movies or books, if you only are drawn towards the weird stuff and you haven't read or seen any of the stuff people actually like and know about, I'm not sure you've earned the credit to go in that direction, but you clearly have. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's like, it's like eating pizza. You can eat like one style of pizza and it'd be like, Oh, this is the best pizza ever. And you've, 
never tried anything else, how do you even voice your opinion to get across why you like that pizza to other yeah, people, look, right? Yeah, look, like, I love Hawaiian pizza, right? Which is but absolutely I've, atrocious. Right, but the point is, I've eaten all the others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know yeah. what pepperoni tastes like. I mean, if I were to I've say even... Hawaiian pizza was the best pizza and I've never tried pepperoni, yeah. well, then I'd be talking out of my ass. Exactly. I mean, I've put anchovies. I mean, <laughs> I put anchovies on pizza. It's gross. It's a mistake. But it's like you have to you have to take the bad with the good and kind of figure out your own tastes and then yeah. build off that. So that's so back back to the, the books for a second, you know, just to get yeah. a little meta here. I think part of what people like about listening to other people talk, whether it's about books or movies, is let's say you read a book and you notice something in that book that you're like, oh my God, I just realized the author is doing this thing. I wonder if anybody else sees that or recognizes that. Mm-hmm. You know, I know personally speaking, I'll seek out podcasts that review that piece of work or even, you know, obviously reviews or articles. And I'm looking actually to see if somebody else notices what I see. A, it's fun if somebody else notices it. And B, it helps to sort of, I guess, you know, verify that what you're noticing does exist. Um, And that's why I think it's always fun, you know, when you're talking about something, you know, why listen to people talk about something you've read? Because people like to talk about the things they consume. It's not simply just a matter of consuming it. It's also mm-hmm. like, oh, hey, yeah, these guys noticed the thing that I noticed in that thing I really like. And then if they yeah, don't notice or, it, yeah, you become enraged. Or, yeah, or conversely, I so often find other perspectives really refreshing that help either, you know, give me something more to think about. Like if I say like, oh, well, I thought the protagonist was, a, a you know, deep down a redeemable person and somebody else is like oh this guy was a vile you know piece of crap the whole way through and then they you know follow up and elucidate on those reasons i can be like oh okay well maybe you know it's somebody else's different perspective that that's the part of sharing that i like i like the the counterpoints of whatever i interpreted out of the work well you know what that's a great transition talking about um you know whether someone is the protagonist or the antagonist because mm-hmm. what a better way to kick off a podcast about books you may never have heard of by starting with a book everyone's heard of called yes. Dune. Um, yes. so the reason we're doing this for a few reasons. All right. First, look, there's a Dune movie coming out. Maybe if we put Dune as our first episode and people are looking for Dune material because they know about the press of the movie, they'll come we're, across our podcast. That's scoop the very, that sweet, sweet uh, <laughs> free promotion. Lost person, That's right. Yeah. We're, we're piggybacking off of a multi-million dollar uh, studios promotional uh, campaign. That's the first let's, cynical reason. Yeah, let the them do all reason, the hard work. Yeah, exactly. The second reason is um, I love Dune. Dune is my favorite novel of all time. And, you know, you and I, when we're doing this podcast, we're trying to figure out books that we had both read. And I know you you read Dune right before the podcast, but you had read it before, correct? Yeah, you actually introduced me to the book. You were the first really? person to recommend it to me. Yeah. Oh, I'm surprised about that. So anyways, no, yeah, it was, so- yeah, because um, my, it, I think we were like early 20s and you recommend, you were like, oh, you got to read this book, Dune. And prior to that, I would, had just started and I had read nothing but like science, uh, uh, mostly fantasy sword and sorcery stuff like Lord of the Rings, R.A. Salvatore, that kind of like entry level, like teenager stuff. Um, yeah. Stephen King books were big for me then. So I had just barely begun to scrape the surface of like the like what books could actually be. And when you presented Dune to me and I read it and I immediately fell in love with it. I thought it was great. Like that first so, impression was amazing. 
It's interesting that you mentioned Lord of the Rings because Dune is often considered the science fiction counterpart to Lord of the Rings in terms of its scope and its influence on the genre. I mean, I mm-hmm. am one of the people. I, look, I haven't read and I haven't read enough science fiction to say that Dune is the best science fiction novel ever written, but I will confidently come into any argument with people who have read more science fiction than I have and I will say that to their face. I'll be like, I don't care, you know, I've never read iRobot, but I know Dune is the best science fiction novel ever written. Um, Well, here's the thing that after, okay, so I have read it multiple times now and on this last read-through, it like struck me like a bolt out of blue that this book is not a science fiction book. No, it's not. This book is feudalism in space with a bit of fantastical elements. And that is often how I describe it, actually. It is feudalism in space. And it is, you know, look, all science fiction generally is about um, the world we live in today, using the future as an analogy for it. Um, Or technology. I feel like, like a single technology. Like, look at William Gibson's Neuromancer. Like, that was about the possibilities the internet could hold. Yeah, or, or even forward. Red Mars. Red Mars mm-hmm. is a book about, you know, how we would actually, you know, having the knowledge we currently have uh, colonize Mars. And there's like a series of books about it. Um, but they all have something to do with what we know about ourselves today versus why something like Star Wars is not really considered science fiction. It's considered space opera because, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you could draw some really hokey parallels between the empire and i don't know like government tyranny but for the most part science fiction enthusiasts would balk at something like star wars being yeah. considered science fiction even though it takes place in space yeah it's samurai in space i mean right and the thing is is what di- differentiates science fiction and like this fantasy idea i have of dune and star wars is there's a, a lot of hand waving t- to the technology like their technology is in dune especially there's an explanation given that why there's no computers and things such as that nature, but I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah. But nothing has any basis in any real science when we start picking apart, when we start cracking open and, you know, and looking at things. Whereas if you have you ever read I think its name's Ted Chiang? No. He did the short story that uh the movie Arrival was based on. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and a lot of his stories are very human. What happens if you have these fantastical technologies? How do they shape humanity? Like the individual person's, you know, response to this amazing technology that that was seemed inconceivable 50 years ago. What does it mean for humanity moving forward? Dune doesn't do that. Dune is basically no. like, yeah, there's this mystical spice and it gives you uh, well, why don't why don't we yeah. you know talk about that for a second the context of Dune. Dune mm-hmm. was Dune was published in 1965. It won a bunch of awards, the Nebula Award um, for science fiction. I think it also won the Hugo. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, the writer, for best the, first novel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The author of Dune is this guy named Frank Herbert. And let me just basically I'll give um I'll give try I'll try to give the shortest account I can of a plot that literally scopes six books countless spin-off books you know like that are prequels oh, we can't written even, by the sun we can't yeah. even talk about the sequels we got to keep this one tight and then focus yeah, on we'll, dune we'll, we'll keep it as tight as possible in terms of just recounting plots uh, if you listen to the hidden gems movie podcast that i host you'll know i hate uh recounting plots but i always have to do it so dune takes place in a future uh world society where 
Um, there are what are essentially noble houses that control a vast amount of the universe. There is one house that is usually the the, the leading noble house. So it really is feudalism in space, uh, which would be the emperor's house. And then there are minor noble houses underneath. And the main characters of this story are one of the noble houses called the Atreides. Um, the main character of the story is named Paul Atreides. He is the son of the Duke Atreides, who is the head of this household. And his family has been designated by the emperor to go to a planet called Arrakis which contains an element uh, called spice. And spice is essentially, to draw the real-world parallel, it is the oil of this universe. Um, it is what allows their ships to navigate through space um, through something that they call space folding, which means the ships don't actually travel through space. They actually fold space so the ship stays in one place and the space around it changes. And the way that the ships are able to do this is they have these characters that they call guild navigators. And guild navigators are these human beings that are completely uh, transfigured, disfigured, transformed into a weird squid-like creature because they consume... Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, oh, whoa, whoa. Where have I messed up here? In the book, it's it's never taken to that... Um, uh, what is it? Lynchian level of monster. They Did, did Lynch when they show actually... Up, he kind of made that stuff up himself. In the book, okay. in the book, they just appear as like gray, pale figures that are wearing like contact lenses to hide the fact that their eyes have gone pitch black, but normally they're humanoid in appearance. Okay, good good correction. You know, it's funny, um, both the adaptations of Dune that have come out so far, the David Lynch one and the sci the sci-fi channel one, which is slightly better, um, both have them as like squid like creatures. But the point is this these guys, these guild navigators, they consume the spice. Spice is almost like a powder. And it allows it gives them powers which essentially let them fold space of any ship that they're in, which allows ships to travel great distances. Now, spice can only be manufactured, and you don't actually know how it's manufactured in the beginning of the book, but it can only be manufactured on this desert planet called Arrakis. So if you're catching the parallels here, you've got spice slash oil, and you've got... Um, you know, Arrakis slash the Middle East, or if you want to be more specific, the uh, Saudi Arabian Peninsula. So this this noble family, the Atreides, they are tasked with coming to Arrakis to take over for a former noble family called the Harkonnens, which are also their bitterest enemies, because for some reason the Harkonnens have been recalled by the emperor of the universe. His name is uh, Shaddam. Padish Shaddam, you'll have to correct me on the name there. Um, for mysterious reasons, supposedly they're not getting enough spice production out of this planet. And on this planet exist a number of people. There are people who live within the city walls of the planet, which is kind of like the imperial city. And there are a group of people that live outside of the city in the deep desert. They are called Fremen. Uh, you could draw the parallel to the Bedouin tribes of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. And what you need to realize basically is on this planet, there's almost no water. So while spice is the main, the major, you know, um, export of this planet and valued across the universe to the people on the planet, water is what is valuable to them. So the new noble family moves in and suffice it to say some treachery occurs and, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to spoil anything too much. Or I think we're probably going to spoil things anyways. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think yeah. from the beginning of the book, they just they just lay it all out there. 
Like, they do. A, so, yeah. so the Baron Harkonnen, the the sort of the 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 enemy of the Duke of the Trades House. This guy's name is Duke Leto. His his enemy, who's the head of the Harkonnen's house, named Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. He plans to betray the Atreides and regain control of the desert planet of Arrakis, which is exactly what he does. A sort of um, you could call it a coup or a surprise attack happens almost. You know, I, I think within months of uh, the Atreides yeah. taking over the planet the of timeline Arrakis. Is, the timeline's never clear, but it yeah. feels like... It's the, very soon. And and it shows how the the faults of the Harkonnens, because how quickly they move. Like, yeah. these people are greedy, boastful. They only think about power and obtaining it. So, yeah, if they rush into it, it doesn't surprise me. And, and here's the last thing I'm going to say just regarding the plot summary, and then we will summarize more of the plot as the conversation continues. But the Harkonnens are successful in regaining control of the desert planet of Arrakis. They, uh, they kind of eliminate the Atreides noble house. But the son, Paul, who is the main character of this book, he escapes into the deep desert where he uh, links up with the Fremen people who take him in. And here's the sort of the main selling point, you know, of this book that sort of everybody is drawn to and everybody remembers. Paul is the Messiah figure in two different factions of this book. There are multiple factions that incorporate this uh, space feudal universe. One faction is the Fremen who regard Paul as their Messiah because he displays um, some strange powers to them that is foretold in their prophecies where an outworlder will come to their planet and sort of lead them to prosperity, whatever that may be. What they consider it to be is actually the terraforming of their planet from a mm-hmm. desert wasteland into a green, you know, sort of a jungle a livable. oasis. Yeah, a livable Well, not like atmosphere. an oasis. They just want like a single lake. They want lake. water. They want a single <laughs> lake. They'll be happy. That's right. They just want a pond. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and Paul is also considered a type of messiah-like figure to a group of women who are called witches by other people in the book. But there's an order of women who have these kind of strange powers called the Bene Gesserit. And Paul's mother, uh, Jessica, is one of these women. Technically, she has left their order in order to marry Paul's father. Uh, although she doesn't actually marry him, to be fair. She's just yeah, his concubine. Yeah, she's the concubine. Right. But she was a member of this order, and they believe also that her son Paul is something called the Quitsock Heterock, which is a man who basically has the powers and more that these Bene Gesserit women have. So he that has is, the, yeah. yeah, he gains the ability to see what they can't. Right, right. And we'll we'll, we'll We'll, get into that more. We'll get into that more. But here's the point. He gets these powers. He links up with the Fremen. And for the rest of the book, he is leading a guerrilla war against the the former slash new rulers of the planet of Arrakis, the dastardly Harkonnens. How did I do there? I think you did fine. I mean, there's so much there's so much setup and yeah. payoffs in this book that you have to this break it down. This book has three books technically within the first book. It's like yeah. book one, book two, and book three. And book and I one want, yeah. ends just with the setup. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to talk about that, that, the way that it's split because book one, uh, I found it to be, it's easily my favorite out of the three oh, books. Oh, interesting. Because it, that's all about the setup, the mythology that goes into the world, the espionage elements, and Basically, it's the only part of the book, in my opinion, that has any sort of tension. Like, hmm. because you know there's yeah, a traitor. you're right. You're right. You know there's a traitor. You know exactly who the traitor is, but that's not the point. That's a fait accompli. You already know that's going to happen. But 
the one part of why I would recommend this book to anybody is just because of there's a dining room scene where the Atreides have to throw a party for all the local Arrakis noble people and they have to kind of suss out who they can buy to become loyal to them, who's obviously still being ruled under the thumb of the Harkonnens, and how can they also convince the Fremen, who they just met, that they're the they're the opposite of the Harkonnens. And that's the strength of that first book to me, is just the way they the, the way they have to speak to each other, you get to see the inner thoughts playing off of each other. What do you think about that whole thing? Well, first you know, I, I acted surprised when you said that uh, it was your favorite book, and then I thought about it for like two seconds. I was like, why am I surprised? It's obviously the best part of the book. Um, you're yeah. completely right. Um, well, for starters, not only does it have tension, but it also shows the most aspects of the Dune universe for the rest of the book. Because what happens is, after the first book ends, it becomes very localized to Paul and his experience with the Fremen. And not only his experience with the Fremen, but what I'll say is, the book, and we're going to go into a little thing, we a little surprise we have later involving uh, Philip K. Dick, uh, but, but the book, after the first part of it, it starts to go into a lot of like the really crazy mystical um, aspects of Paul's powers uh, that can that I remember on my first read. I mean, I've read the book dozens of times, but definitely on my first read, I think lost me a little bit. It kind of felt mm-hmm. like watching the like, I don't know, like 13, 14 minute long uh, um, wormhole sequence in 2001. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like trying to read that. Like, so basically Paul's exploring his powers and at time the book goes on long tangents of Paul exploring his powers and it can get a little confusing, quite frankly. Yeah. I I mean, so like the first book is that pot boiler espionage, very character driven kind of drama. And then the second book uh, is basically their escape into the desert and learning Mm -hmm. how to cope with the environment. And then it becomes kind of like a a pulp cereal like i'm exploring the desert people we got to get out of this trench here for the alien men find us yeah kind of like a like a radio cereal and then the third book jumps incredibly it jumps like about two years into the two future. years into the future and then kind of just quickly wraps everything up i was surprised how fast like the uh, i guess you would call it the denouement happens like ah, just yep. fancy yeah, I'm going to be peppering those 50-cent words in yeah, there. Yeah, please, please. I, you just gave me a little stiffy. <laughs> All righty. Well, yeah, and so that's what I said. And here's my problem with the book after I finished reading it, is that there's no tension moving after that first book because Paul is the classic Mary Sue. Have you heard that term before? No, I've never heard it. Explain. So a Mary Sue is a character in a story that basically can do everything and can no harm can become them like any situation that seems dangerous they easily diffuse it whether it be a physical conflict or like a mental or diplomatic thing Mm -hmm. they basically have another term called like plot armor that they need to survive because otherwise you don't have a book if this book went on and saying like oh paul's the he's the Quisaj Hadarak, he's the Messiah and everything, and then he gets shot midway through book two <laughs> and dies. Like, you don't have Dune. Like, everything that book is building up to is kind of, like I said, it's fait accompli. Like, you know Paul's the Messiah. He passes the early test. He starts passing every other test. 
And towards the end, she's like, yeah, yeah, of course he's going to win. I don't think the bad guys are going to get one over on him. And it's just, there's no tension. It's just like, okay, yeah, what happens next? And that's why... I agree with you, but let me offer a counter here, okay? The first part in regards to the first book being superior to the second two parts of the book, um, I don't know. You know, a lot of times things like Lord of the Rings, I don't know if this was supposed to be multiple books, even though it is multiple books technically, but if the first book was supposed to be multiple books. But it makes sense, um, no matter what, that you do not have the first part of this book be its own novel because then people would be only severely disappointed by the latter two uh, parts of the novel. That Mm -hmm. being said, I'll tell you why I don't have a problem with it, Um, especially as a young man reading this. Um, It's kind of like Ender's Game almost, and not just Ender's Game, but there's a saying from famous screenwriter slash filmmaker slash playwright David Mamet, and his saying is there is nothing more exciting than watching someone who is good at their job, right? So especially in the third part of this novel, there is something to be said about watching a guy kick ass, right? Because Paul has gone through the first and the second book, he's gone through, I think, what are the most dangerous aspects of his life, the parts where there is genuine um, doubt in terms of how he's going to turn out, or at least as much doubt as you can possibly have for the main character of a book. Mm -hmm. But in the third part of this book, He's kicking ass, and by that point, you're all for it, because in the second part of the book, you're watching what the villains are doing to the planet. So you're waiting for Paul to sort of arise from his exile to start kicking some ass, and that's exactly what happens. Well, that's why I feel like he's underutilized, because you get the snippets of his inner conflict where he's afraid of the places he has to go. One of the main fears he has is how powerful he is. That right. he's going to get the Fremen all riled up and he's going to basically put on a universal jihad. And this like, is really important, too, because yeah. there are six books. And what I'm going to tell you is the second and third book revolve around this problem. So mm-hmm. um, Frank Herbert is on record saying that part of the reason he wrote this book wasn't simply just to show how the dynamics of oil geopolitics works in the 20th century, but also how he doesn't believe in messiah figures and how even a messiah figure with the best of intentions can uh you know lead everything off the rails but yeah, the lose issue control is of that, their flock right yeah. but that doesn't happen in the first dune book in the first dune book he just kicks ass and takes names by the end and it's only in the second and the third dune books where the idea that his um what he calls his jihad possibly has done more harm to the universe uh than benefited it And a lot of people had problems with the second and third books as a result of that because people just wanted to see this guy keep kicking ass and taking names. So he kind of wrote the second and the third books partly to get his point across that he did not get across in the first book. That's pretty fascinating that he had such a... That was his overall arch was to put down He fell victim to the very thing he was trying to illuminate, right? He's trying to show Mm -hmm. that, you know, you can't trust any messiah or leader. And at at the end of the first book, he had written a book where people are like, yeah, I'll follow a guy like that, which is totally Mm -hmm. antithetical to what he was trying to do. So there's like meta irony in this. Yeah, because also I think I was reading probably on the wiki that Frank Herbert's own philosophy is very – will centered like uh the overall like it's the power of the will like there's certain people oh, careful that are, there careful there like, you i just, know you i just know. associated with him with the nazis 
I, well, it's, it's you were very, one word away from it. You were one word away. If you were to try the, the triumph of the will, the will. no, yeah. it's very, but it's very niching. Like it's yeah. like the, it's you know Rousseau is the guy that was like every man's equal. We have to make society work for it. Whereas Nietzsche is like the polar opposite, where he's like men aren't equal, and it's up to certain people to take control and and lead. And I kind of got that vibe from Herbert's writing in this, where it's like. Yes, we have to make these people that, you know, are going to be good leaders. They're going to be capable leaders. That's basically the whole Bene Gesserit plan is to weed out bad bloodlines and make this messiah figure. Yeah, so, so expound Paul's on that a little gold. bit. Ex- expound on that a little bit because, you know, we can talk about what this book means, but part of what makes this book great are the different uh, elements and factions in it. So, like, the Bene Gesserit in this, they're not just a group of witches. Like you said, right. they are a group of women who manipulate bloodlines because they're essentially a breeding program. And what they are trying to do is they are trying to breed the leaders of humanity, um, but they do it in complete secrecy, and nobody knows what the fuck they're doing. And as a result, people just think they're witches like it's Salem in the 16th century. Right, Um and this is the part of the book that stuck out for me more on this repeated reading was they explain this. Um, so the background before this novel takes place, humanity had made like an all powerful AI that could think like a human. And it basically caused a, a Terminator Skynet type of war called Hell the yeah. Butlerian Jihad. Hell and yeah, mankind, yeah. And mankind had to basically shut down all the computers and say, we can never make another computer that can think like a man or the, the computer that's modeled after the mind of a man. So what humanity came up with in order to move forward is they made A, this group of people called the Mentats, which are basically trained from a very, very, very young age into becoming living computers. Yeah, they're th- odds calculators. You know what they really are? What are those group of people who assess risk? There's a name for them. Um, risk, risk assessment people or whatever no, yeah but there's actually a name for that job it's a really hard job to get in fact it's a real niche business and you like go through all these like trainings and like tests it's almost like the phd equivalent of an education uh, i can't remember their name but they get paid huge amounts of money by companies to basically calculate odds in their head revolving around risk so um mentats they're, they're sort of considered human computers, but what they yeah. really are is they're just master strategists, right? You tell yeah. them, here's a situation, and they will give you all the odds of every possible outcome of a situation as it could potentially play out because the humans will no longer build what they call thinking machines. That's the really important part. They yeah. still build machines, but no thinking machines. They do not build any AI. Artificial intelligence is not only taboo, it's illegal. Yeah, and the Mentat pr- uh, training is so severe that they operate on reason alone, supposedly. That if they have the information that, say, all signs point to X, they will believe X until something tells them otherwise, which comes up in one of the characters. Yeah, there's but, absolutely zero um, intuition involved. They don't they yeah. don't intuit anything. There's no going there's from the no, gut here. No gut shooting here. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and then so you got the Bene Gesserits, and it's the I think it's the uh, what is it the head the head mother the grandmother, the reverend mother, reverend mother. Yeah, the grandmother sounds like the it sounds like a white supremacy all female group. Yeah, but I think it's the reverend mother. Yeah, the reverend mother actually says I think she's explaining it to Paul that the Bene Gesserit were created to be 
the future of politicians. Like their training is in first and foremost, how do we control people subtly behind the scenes, you know, manipulating bloodlines, causing marriages, stuff like that. But then you find out that it, it they're also trained in poison and certain types of self-defense, like they can fight if need to. Yeah, and then they also, yeah, and they also have the power called the voice, which to me suggests like, like a psychological, physiological kind of melding, where they can say things in a certain way by pitching their voice at certain levels that compel people to do as they do as they tell them. Uh, one powerful example of this is uh, Jessica and the Atreides, um, uh, the Atreides Mentat. They're having an argument. Because they each think the other one's the traitor. And Jessica's able with a word to make the Mentat sit right back down in his chair. And he's like, how'd she make... How'd she Wait, do that Wait, was it the Mentat? Was it yeah, Thurfer? It was, was it, it Thurfer was or was it Duncan? Because he, she also has an encounter with a drunken Duncan Idaho. Yeah, but that's... her a witch. Because Hawat assigns Idaho to trail Jessica. This is in the midst of like... They know there's a traitor amongst the right. ranks. And they don't trust her because her background was as a Bene Gesserit, even though she has technically left the order. Yeah, and, and like I said, they, Leto and Jessica love each other. They have a very... Absolutely. and But yet they don't show... They're very cold to each other. They each act their part in the role of leading this noble family to the point that that's what Hawat can't see in Jessica, that Jessica loves... Uh, the Duke of Trades. Yeah. And see, that's where that gut feeling, he he believes in his head through reason that Jessica's the traitor and nothing she says will basically change well, his mind. Well, let me ask you a question, right? I would say, personally, you know, I can't actually assess this. I don't have a poll. But if you ask me, what are the two most famous things about the Dune novel? I would say two things right off the bat. I would say Everyone who's heard of the Dune novels has heard of the Bene Gesserit and the giant worms, which we haven't even gotten into yet. Um, yeah. But would you agree that the Bene Gesserit is one of the two most sort of mainstream known about tidbits of this book? I would say that if from the book alone. But I think Just the, the book alone. The, the movie itself has propagated that whole fear is the mind killer speech. Like, okay. There's like the man children that wave their plastic lightsabers in the air. There's other geeks like us that can quote... The, the next generation but then there's like a third group that, that, like the dune heads that are like yeah this is the best one like fears the mind killer so, so a can... couple things here the fears that you were talking about the niche the nietzschean model of the man and that mm -hmm. comes into basically a lot of the, one of the ways he writes his book is that there's a lot of inner monologuing that you get to hear the characters go through and a lot of the characters it's kind of a world dominated by different philosophical sects uh, mm -hmm. S E C T S sects. It's a hard word to yeah, say, not like, make like it sound insects. Like sex. <laughs> yeah, like insects, exactly. Um, so, anyways, and one of the these uh, these philosophies which Paul practices, he says things like, "Fear is the mind killer." I will let my fear pass through me. After that, you know, all that I will be all that remains. Right. So, there's a lot of yeah. like personal sort of philosophies that these characters really follow in order to strengthen themselves for the situations that they encounter, which I think goes a large way into the Nietzschean model of what you're talking about. Um, yeah. Well, but, not only but, that, it's, it's strongly hinted that, and it's, I think it's expressed right out that if you can't master your own fear or your, your own will, you're not even a human. 
You're That's just right. an animal. That's right. Like they, that, they really, they really yeah. are against operating on instinct. Um, the idea of human beings operating on instinct is anathema to them. It's they they disdain. Whoa, the whoa, idea. whoa! I'm the guy that says the fifty cent words here, Sam. No, I had to. I had to match you up on there. Um, <laughs> you gotta put that thesaurus down right now, man. <laughs> yeah, put it right. You caught me. I'm just furiously looking for a good word to use and when to use it. Um, yeah, but so the the thing is with this is that they view anyone use that's operating on instinct rather than logic and reason as an animal. And in fact, this book, first of all, we've been doing a lot of describing about what this book is about, mm-hmm. but this book also kicks ass. I mean, this is my favorite novel of all time. And part of it is the first chapter. This book is one of the dopest first chapters of all time in which Paul is still very much a young man. And the head of the Bene Gesserit comes to his, his original planet that his family are the masters of called Caladan which by the way is a water planet and she wants to perform this test on him and his mother sort of begrudgingly lets this woman do it and the test Mm -hmm. is paul has to put his hand into a box and i think this is also a very famous part of the book yeah this is the first scene he puts his hand into a box and he's like what's in the box and the reverend mother's like pain and he puts his hand into the box and the second he puts his hand into the box the the reverend mother with like a very quick, like lightning fast reflex that they they, they actually ascribe as part of her powers. Yeah, um, the weirding pin- way. I the weirding way puts her pinky to Paul's neck, and on her pinky is a needle. It's called the gum jabar, and it's got poison on it that will lead to instant death. And she's like, dude, you need to keep your hand in this box, and no matter what, you've got to keep your hand in despite all the pain you feel. And if you take your hand out of the box, it means you're an animal, and I'm going to kill you. And yeah. I never understood this scene, even though it kicked ass and I loved it, right? I never well, understood it until maybe right now, which mm-hmm. is the idea that she suspected that Paul was the Quitsock Heterock, right? That he was mm-hmm. the guy that they had been waiting for. But if he had all these powers that the Quitsock Heterock would have, but wasn't in control of himself, he would be far too dangerous to let live. I'm literally coming to exactly. that epiphany right now. Is that correct? I, I believe so, because uh, the the Reverend Mother, Guy Helena, she says it's something along the lines of that if you're caught in a trap, an animal will gnaw its own arm off, you know, to get out of the trap. Like, it'll yeah. be unbelievably savage. But a human will lie in wait for the hunter to come back and like spring it, like get revenge on him. Yeah. And it's like, that's that whole, you have to have that self mastery. So while I think the guys, Helena, the Reverend mother suspects Paul can be the foretold Messiah. I think everybody just kind of has to go through this test. I it's, I don't think it's ever explicitly mentioned, but I think that's a good any qu- noble people know. probably have to go through the test. The Benedictine so. for sure. I think- I think only the Benny Gesserit, and I think the reason she does it to Paul is that in the off chance he is the Quitsock Heterock, which is a possibility they're aware of, right? Mm-hmm. If he is what they consider an animal, he has to die just to play it safe. You see what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I don't mean, think it's, they're it's... gonna do it to Duke Leto or any or any other nobleman. I think True. they're doing it to him specifically because it's they one suspect of those... They suspect he might have those powers, but if he's a reckless animal, he can't be trusted to have those powers and basically has to be killed. Yeah, because, and it also should be noted that, uh, remember, Jessica basically changed the sex of her baby. They, mm-hmm. The Bene Gesserit instructed her to have a daughter, and she would think that having a son would make Leto 
I guess love her more. Or this is yeah. This is wanted. part of their breeding program. Their breeding program instructs her to have a daughter because they have this master. I mean, imagine people with a giant chart, like a genome chart, right? And the idea is mm-hmm. this: a female, a girl that she would have would just be another piece in this enormous genome chart to create whatever it is they're supposed to create. But you're right. Instead, she has a boy because she loves the Duke Leto, and Leto wants a son. So I guess she has the power to determine the the, the sex of her child. So yeah, the she, Bene, yeah, the Bene yeah. Gesserits have like such a a molecular level control on their bodies that I guess they can just switch, you know, chromosomes. Um, but yeah, also she was supposed to have a girl cause they were going to marry him off to the Harkonnens to bind right. the families together. And, and by the way, the Benny Jesser, just to my point about them being well known, um, outside of Dune, they're the only faction of Dune, uh, that actually lasts through all six Dune novels. And I'm going to give something away cause I don't really think it's a spoiler. But by the time you get to the sixth book of Dune, you are thousands of years later from the first book of Dune. Um, I love Dune the novel. I have even more respect for Dune the series, the complete series, because as mm-hmm. a sci it's one of the most epic things you will ever read in your life. I mean, it takes place over thousands of years. It, the story that ends up getting told... You couldn't even imagine he was planning on telling um, from the first book. But also being said about these Bene Gesserit and their weirding ways and their use of the voice, there is something to be said about Frank Herbert possibly having some sort of fear of women and their control over him. Because as the books books Uh, go on, uh, the Bene Gesserit start to employ like sexual tactics of domination, which is pretty on the nose. Yeah. It's not even sexual assassins. It's like if she has sex with you, then she controls you for life. I mean, that's. I, I vaguely remember that yeah, from. That, that's, yeah. That's and very gets, on the surface. <laughs> and as you go along further, I think it gets more and more into it. Where I think it's like book four, like I think it's Chapter House Dune, where it's just like, yeah, these sexy vampire Benny Jesuits are running around. You know, thinking specifically of Frank Herbert and Alan Moore, is there something to be said about author male authors and as they get older, they become more perverted? Oh, easily. Yeah. Yeah. Like some of the most like it's just I guess they're just starting to act out their inner fantasies. Like if it starts off innocently enough where Herbert's trying to get across his personal philosophies via the, you know, Paul's psychology, like philosophies, psychology, religion, etc. Then, yeah, towards the end, after they made their point, they're just like, well, this is the kink that I'm into. (laughs) (laughs) Just throwing it out there. Okay, so I guess they just feel more free putting their material out there. Look, we're talking a lot about the plot of Dune and, you know, sort of, look, Dune's got a kick-ass plot. There's no question. It it reads almost like an Avengers movie. Um, It's got superheroes, superpowers, you know, uh, politics, villainous factions. It's even got geology in there. Um, But Mm -hmm. one thing I want to mention about Dune, and I didn't notice it the first time I read it, but like I said, I've read the book like a dozen times now, and I noticed it in the later readings, is that, and you guys are, as we continue this podcast, you guys are going to hear me bring this up a lot. Um, Frank Herbert is an intelligent writer. And what I mean by that is not that the plot is intelligent, which it is. And this is, you know, for you real book nerds and you literature nerds, this is where we're going to get super technical. The quality of his writing is so smart, right? He, um, as a writer, it's just very clear you are reading the works of a very intelligent 
um, mind, somebody who knows how to write and express themselves without seeming infantile. And the reason I bring that up is you brought up that, uh, you know, early on in your obsessive compulsive reading years, you read a lot of uh, Stephen King. I never Mm -hmm. read Stephen King growing up and a friend recommended it to me. Now, it, after I read it, not only had a ridiculously stupid plot, which, by the way, I could let go, but it was written by somebody who, in my opinion, is not a smart writer. And what I mean by that is it read like this. And then he said, and then she said, and then he said again, and then she said again. It's kind of the difference between pop fiction, right, popular fiction, and, like, Mm -hmm. real literature. And... This guy, while he's writing a kick-ass novel, let's say he decided to write, I don't know, a book about a couple getting divorced. It would still right. be written just as intelligently. And it that's would. A, that's a, and that's ruined a lot of books for me, Sean, specifically novels. A, mm-hmm. a, the reason I have a hard time reading some novels is because I just don't think they're written intelligently. I would never read something like The Da Vinci Code, uh, no offense to anyone who enjoys it, because I find that for me personally— Reading is not an easy endeavor. Even though I actually read a lot, I never I never read and I'm like, oh, I'm just casually reading. I'm always focusing really hard when I read um, just because I have to. And I want to make sure that what I'm reading is in, is justifying the amount of time and effort. I can watch some trashy movies. I don't like to, but I can. Uh, yeah. I don't want to read a trashy book because it's a yeah. lot of effort going down the drain like you're getting nothing out of it and for instance another example of a writer who really surprised me of how intelligent he was was i decided to read i loved the movie of a uh, tinker taylor soldier spy I, I was just fascinated mm-hmm. by the movie i loved it but i hadn't read the book and i was like i was like i wonder how this book is written because it's just like you know it seemed like a, a normal kind of like pop fiction spy novel but the movie was so intelligent i was like there must be a little bit more here to the book and i read the book and i was like oh this guy is frank herbert but for international espionage. So these guys exist, these really intelligent writers, where it's just Mm -hmm. clear their intellect is working on a different plane than someone like Stephen uh, King. Or to be really specific, to draw it to movies, that's what I do. Frank Herbert versus Stephen King is like Stanley Kubrick versus Steven Spielberg. Do you think that's a you know a, justif- a justifiable uh, you know criticism or you know view of Herbert and King? I think the the way Herbert writes, it's very blunt, very straightforward and to the point. There's no flowery prose. There's nothing. There's like no wasted motions. And that's where I sense where you're getting that intelligence. But it's not overly simplistic. No, it's not. But however, he's not, in my mind, he's not very good at like scene settings. Like, he basically, he tells you what he needs to know, and he moves on. So if you do like reading books kind of like that, where it's like you just get that information and it moves forward, then Herbert is a really good example. But, but dude, I'm so glad you said that, because for me, I hate scene settings. Look, you tell me it's a desert, and I got mm-hmm. it, right? I got it in my head. I've grown up watching right. movies. I can picture a desert immediately. I don't know. I don't need to know what it feels like to have the grain of sand run through your fingers. I don't need to know that. It does yes, nothing and I, for I, me. I, I get it, but you know, when it comes to describing like certain scenes, like where you'd be like, Oh, well, he ran across the the drum sand on the north face of the dune. And then I was like, okay, I can kind of visualize it. But then I noticed it really started to bug me when he was describing the caverns. 
He'd be like, they climbed a steep ledge that angled to the a 90 degree right and they ducked down. And it's just, I was like, Jesus, man, I can't picture any of this. Yeah, and you know I what, feel... dude, I hate that stuff. How about he hid behind exactly. a rock? He hid behind a rock. Like, I got, there was a rock yeah. in the desert and he hid behind it. I never understand why authors feel the need to basically write a screenplay. Right. I don't need that. You just give me a general enough outline and my brain is mm. you look, the human brain's the best one we got on planet Earth, right? It may not say yeah. much for the aliens, but it's the best one on this planet. Like my brain will put together the pieces of what's going on there. I don't need to know the angle exactly. Of you are correct. And but that's that's what I'm saying is like Herbert's writing is very serviceable to what he's trying to do. It's a it's a straightforward plot. It mm. goes from A to B to C. If you need to hear that there's a giant worm, he's going to tell you how big the worm is. But even when um, I I can't get my point across, I'll explain this. So let me talk real quick about the worms on the planet Arrakis. Yeah, I think okay? we have to get into that. We have. So to. yeah, so the the substance known as spice is a kind of it shows up in pockets in the desert, and it's very dangerous to harvest because. Any mo- like any vibration in the ground, any loud sounds, attract these mega sandworms, kind of like from Beetlejuice, but kinda even kind of like from Tremors. <laughs> yeah, but even like massive. They're the size. Yeah. They're, I, I consider bigger them, like, than dinosaurs. Bigger than I consider dinosaurs. them like yeah, I consider them like like almost like sperm whale size. Like they're just they're, well, gigantic. they're bigger. They're they're bigger than that. They're skyscrapers. They're literally okay, like yeah. the size of a skyscraper. Yeah, I mean, like, if you get caught, I mean, you can see them coming from miles away. So the yeah. typical protocol is they will have a, like, a collection vehicle on the ground trying to hover up as much spice as possible. Then they put their helicopters that are shaped like hummingbirds <laughs> around the outside <laughs> to watch for when these worms come because it looks like tidal waves approaching the site. Mm-hmm. And that's the danger in harvesting the spice. So you need people that know what they're doing. And people feel like the Harkonnens, especially they feel, Which, that, by the way, sorry, but another allegory to like trying to get oil out of the ground, incredibly dangerous to work on one of those oil mm-hmm. rigs. Hey, keep going. Yeah. So the Harkonnens, they hire like the locals and people from other planets to be like these spice runners. And they basically look at the area kind of outside the safe perimeter, like towards the South, I think it is as like no man's land. There's insanely deadly storms out there. Your equipment doesn't work right. And there's these giant freaking worms that will eat you if you so much as miss, take two wrong steps. They'll rush at you and eat you. And what the Harkonnens don't know is that the friend. Wait, are you giving it away? Are you giving. Oh, no, I'm, you're just. I, okay, never mind. Sorry. I'm kind of going a, into it. But are you going to yeah. give away the, the surprise ending about the worms, right? This book also has a surprise ending. This book's got okay. it all, I tell you. Yeah. Um, do you think it's too much of a spoiler to talk about how the Fremen travel? No, that's not a spoiler. That's not a spoiler okay. at all. But there is a spoiler, a big spoiler regarding the worms. And I don't need to go into that to make my point here about the writing. Okay, um, so, so yeah. should we not do that then? Are we going to not talk about it? Like, does it I really think we add anything? Skip... Does it really no. add anything? No, so we'll, all right, so we'll leave. We're going to leave. For any of you who have read Dune or listened to this podcast, you know what the thing about the worms is. But I don't think it actually has any impact on sort of anything other than the story itself. It's not... Well, maybe it does have something to do with the natural world, but we'll leave it out anyways. Yeah, I think we can we can leave it. 
Okay. So anyway, uh, so the Fremen are able to move incredibly fast over the desert, you know, bespoke to their nomadic lifestyle because they've actually learned how to ride the sandworms. They are able to basically you have to attract one to your location and then basically like a bullfight, you have to dodge it as it passes you. And if you can climb up on its back, you can get your hooks in it and then you can you can ride it kind of like a wild bull by like steering it and his dis- like i cannot for the life of me figure out like the way that herbert describes it how this works he kind of puts a lot of detail into it like the reason is the worms hate getting sand under their their plated sections so under you their pull pussies. the hooks up yeah you, so <laughs> so you basically you pull the hooks up to a have the sand go in front of you so the worm doesn't want to roll into more sand thereby squashing you, but then you can kind of manipulate it by like sliding left and right. But it's never explained how the locomotion of these worms work. Like, have you ever seen that? I understand that earthworms can move straight forward if they're underground, but if everybody's been out after a rainstorm and you've seen like earthworms on the sidewalk, just rolling side and back and forth, how do you get the worms to go in straight lines? I have no idea. This keeps me up at night. I'm gonna They're get not- killed. For, I'm gonna get killed for this for anybody who reads it. But I have mastered the art of what I call skim reading, and it's not just okay. that I'm not reading. I'm reading every word, but yet somehow what I can do in situations like these is when I know, okay, he's gripping the worm, he's putting his hook in the worm, and he's climbing up. I'll read every word after that, and I won't really actually be processing the minute the minute detail in which Herbert's trying to get across or any author for that yeah. for that matter. I'm just like, all right, I here's how I read it. He's going into detail about how he's climbing the worm and all I'm reading is he's climbing the worm. He's climbing the worm. He's climbing the worm. <laughs> yeah. He's climbing the worm. He's on the worm now. Like that's how I read stuff. Um because I tune shit like that out. I just do. Mm-hmm. I've mastered that art. Well that's where that's why Herbert that speaks to you so on a like an intelligent level. Because he doesn't put any, like, secondary thought into what he's writing. There are scenes that straight up confuse me how they work. Do you remember the scene where Paul and Jessica, they're looking for shelter after having to flee into the desert? Mm-hmm. And they find a gorge, which, I once again, I don't know how this works. There's a gorge in the ground, and Paul has to slide down a slope. And... In doing so, he kind of brings down an avalanche of sand behind him, including burying Jessica underneath the sand. And then the rest of this chapter is him trying to figure out a way, A, to get his mother out of the sand. And then B, there's this weird description of how he MacGyver's like foam to come out of his compass to burrow into the side using like a geometric angle. And my brain is doing backflips trying to figure this out yeah, I'm like, you're reading too closely you're, re- you're reading too closely it's like but i he's just, I feel he's just like, trying to get his mom out he's just trying to get his mom out of the sand yeah he has to get his mom out and then they have to go back underneath and get their uh tent and all their supplies so they have to burrow back in there and that's what i don't like when it's this is an important scene because it shows paul's adapting to the desert and yet the way and i like close readings like i like going over things and making sure I understand what's being said. And for Nerd the life alert. of me, I, I, I'm sorry, man. It, that's my OCD. Like, 
Yeah. I I enjoy like Look, I'm flowing. the exact same way with movies. I'm the exact same way. I'll point mm-hmm. out the smallest things. But what's funny is that what you're griping about is interesting to me because it's about physics, right? Literally just like bodily physics versus the actual enormous plot hole that ends the first book, which is literally right after that scene, Paul just says to his mom, he's like, I am the Quitsock Heterock. And you're like, yeah, what? that's what I'm How? saying. That, you're that like, what? Ending... How did you just know this all of a sudden? Well, he does actually, he's like, they, because, okay, you're spoiling it now, but. Well, remember, you know he's the Quitsock he, Heterock. After the spoiler he, he happens, he's able to like communicate with other people by touch. He's able to link consciousness with them. And he links with his mother and his mother sees through his eyes what was, uh, the Quasach Hadarach was supposed to see, which is like the almost absolute future. Yeah, but like, but why does it happen at that moment versus the countless times they have probably hugged? Unless this was the first time mother and son ever touched. Well, no, because is it because they're noble it. family and they he, don't touch each other? He didn't go under the transformation. Remember, like towards the end. No, no, he doesn't. Spoiler, and, and the we're trans- dancing the trans- around spoiler. Well, no, no, hold on. The trans for me, the most confusing part of the entire book is his spice trance he goes he basically takes a bunch of spice and he enters into the 2001 wormhole i call it um and for me that is the most confusing part of the book well it, it or at least off, it's the most it's, psychedelic part it's like hair it starts off it starts off gradually because he starts getting it after um basically he at the beginning of the book when they move into this abandoned harkonnen palace he has like this scent, like a sixth sense. He's got like spidey sense. Yeah, he's gradually there's... awakening to his powers. Sure. Yeah, I'm just saying like, at the end of the first book, it's almost like a keep reading. It's like, you better keep reading because he's figured it out now. But it, it almost feels rushed in my opinion. Well, it's it's set up because like I said, it starts off with spidey, like basic physical reflexes. He senses when there's like, it's like a, literally like a, a tiny drone that's yeah. loaded with poison. He's able to like sense it and he knows exactly when to swat it down. But then in the desert, that's when he starts to have like the awakening of his powers. That's when he's able to know that Jessica is pregnant without her telling him this. That's when he can start seeing into the past and the possible future paths. That's what the diet of spice has slowly started awakening. Like basically all the Fremen have this kind of ability to kind of see Mm -hmm. into the future, but it's it's nothing close to what Paul has. And then Paul, yeah, no, you keep going. You keep going. Well, then Paul has to go at the end of the novel. Okay. (laughs) No, no, don't give it away. This is a good, I'm not going to give it away, but basically Paul gets into a dangerous situation that he didn't see coming. And because of that, that's when he realizes that he's not fully the Quasach Hitterach. He has to do, he has to take the last step. And then after he takes that last step, that's when he gains the ability to kind of link consciousness with other people. Okay, so let me um, transition us now, right? Because I think we're getting towards the end of the podcast. And this is a book, quite frankly, we could talk about it for two hours, and I guarantee oh, yeah. we're going to miss some kick-ass stuff. We haven't even it, gotten into how goofy the names are. Yeah, right. So this is <laughs> this is a world-building thing. I mean, he's Frank Herbert has built an incredible world that's immensely detailed, And I'm sure everybody's got little parts of the book that they just adore, which is going to be now my first question to you. We're going to just start, uh, we're going to do some sort of rapid fire question stuff before we wrap this up. Sean, what's your favorite part of the book? 
Uh, my favorite part of the book I kind of let off with, it's that dining room scene in the okay. first book. It's just because the way that, like, even the it down to the details of how Duke Leto has to make his toast, where he's being insulting to the Harkonnens to kind of get them to come out of their, like, hiding to see who's getting mad at what he's saying. And the way that he's also... Uh, there's like a custom on Dune where the rich people, they come into the, when they come into the party, there's a basin of water. Remember, water is the most important thing. And they're expected to kind of like wipe their hands and just on the, like dip their hands in water, wash themselves, and then just throw the, the towel on the ground. So that way the local poor people can come scoop up these, uh, these leftover rags and wring them out for the water to kind of sell them. And Paul's father's like, this is disgusting. We're not doing this anymore. And just the way that everybody at the party reacts to it just lets you on the insight as to, like, who's playing who, who's on what side. Yeah, there's nothing better than watching a formal royal dinner in which everyone is trying to snuff out everyone else's allegiances. Like, when that's well Mm -hmm. executed, that's just delightful. Because, quite frankly... None of us ever get to experience something like that. I would love, Sean, I would love to be a part of like a really powerful, like sort of monarchial uh, royal dinner with lots of nobles around. And they're just like, Sam, snuff out the traitor. Oh, my God, it would be a blast. Are you (laughs) kidding me? I'm like, so, like, Sir Winchell, what do you think of all these new taxes the king is proposing? Right, yeah, and, and just watch their like study their facial reactions, see if they adjust themselves, or like watch how they eat if they're not eating. Just those little character traits. I was like, man, yeah. I could read, I could read four books of that type, and I do love a good spy thriller, like you said, like John Le Carre, the uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Like I love that. That's kind all of, he does. That's all he yeah, does. Some guy, will, little... some guy will say he had to go to the bathroom, and then like, and then smiley inferred exactly what it was. He was a Russian mole. <laughs> yeah, like I mean? it's so many people when they think of spies, they think of like James Bond, and it's just like no man, the best just spy stuff is like regular people just doing yeah, their stuff. They're just like nebbish little men, and like they look like accountants. But anyways, yeah, back to Dune. Um, I totally agree. That's a that's a very strong candidate, a justifiable candidate for favorite part of the book. Mine kind of piggybacks off of that. Okay, so my favorite scene involves a guy named Doctor Liette Kynes, and he's mm-hmm. a he's a very important character, not necessarily to the Book of Dune, but to the series as a whole. And here's why. Kynes is the imperial planetologist, and what that means is it's his goal, it's his job to basically understand the biology and the geography of the planet. However, he is also a, a Fremen, and his secret- well, he's, he he's gone native. He he turned like a Marlow. Yeah, he's that's like right. Not a nor like a native Fremen. Oh, is that he's not actually Fremen? He just turns native Fremen. Yeah, but he marries because, he marries a Fremen. Yeah, but it's like like with Paul. You can undergo the rituals and yeah. you can become a Fremen. Like, okay, can... so so here's what's important. His goal for the planet is the Fremen's like vision of paradise, which is he wants to terraform the planet into uh, a planet like Caladan, a lush water paradise at least, or a livable space. Mm-hmm. So he kind of works. He works for the Emperor, but he's also secretly working for the Fremen and their goals as well. 
And my favorite scene in the book, and this is a big spoiler alert, but it's not that big a spoiler alert, is his death scene, okay? So I've already told you guys, the Harkonnens retake the planet, so that's no spoiler there. And in the process of this coup, or this this takeover, they they end up killing Liet Kynes. But the way that they do it is they take him out to the desert with something called a thumper, which is what attracts these worms, and to attract a worm to eat him. And he gives this monologue... Uh, as he sees the worm about to eat him, where he is communicating with his dead father, which is one of the dopest monologues I've ever heard in my life. Because yeah, it's kind it's of like, good. yeah, if you're going to die getting eaten by a massive worm and then you decide to basically give a long rant about like your dreams and the dreams of your father and how they will continue, it's just so sick. It, it, it's, yeah. a, it's a one-off of the book. Like it, it has no real power other than you know the relevance of itself like of being kick-ass but it's so dope and i think it's um representative of all the small parts in this book that make up the whole they don't they aren't necessarily the largest uh plot points but some Mm -hmm. parts of this book are just so extraordinarily dope where you just like you just read it and you're like oh my god i can't believe he just did that it's so tight yeah i mean i loved all the details and the mythos and the world building like Everything but the actions, action scenes really yeah. hit for me. Like, that's the stuff that I liked. I, and I think I liked that's, it. that's always true of books, though. Just in general, dude, I will tell that. I will, I will say that is true of every single book I've ever read. Yeah, true. I mean, but it's like anytime there is action, it's always like the service, the plot, or to yeah. kind of like leave like a little cliffhanger. Because oh, I feel a, the same way about movies. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, some action scenes are just beautiful. Like, you can watch, like, a well-done fight scene and be like, that's mm-hmm. great. That's, like, a work of art. That's two people being good at their job, you know, delivering a product. Yeah, um, I, don't know. I I find that stuff... I even find, like, fight scenes boring. Like, I don't really watch kung fu movies. Because, like, if I was going to watch that shit, like, why not just watch gymnastics where they're doing that shit for real and they're not using wires? Or watch your favorite, MMA, where it's for real. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but MMA is so boring because then you realize the ultimate, the, like the the end of all this. Really, when people two when two people are fighting, is just them on the ground pummeling each other and like True. choking each other out. There's absolutely nothing like aesthetically pleasing uh, to it. So, anyways, Sean, do you have anything to say about my favorite part of the book? Um, no, that is a great scene. Um, and the the reason why they're just dumping kinds into the desert is because basically, this is a coup. Like the emperor has permitted the Harkonnens to do okay, what so they're doing. Okay, so you just doing. gave that away, but it's okay. The Emperor's in on it. The Emperor was trying to trap the Duke Leto the entire time because he fears Duke Leto's rising popularity. So the Emperor, while pretending to be on Duke Leto's side and giving him the great gift of ruling over the most important planet in the universe, he is actually setting the Duke Leto up for failure. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's a big of a spoiler because no, that's, it's not. that's it's explained. Not. Because yeah. there's, of course, the... The Emperor's Royal Troops, the Death Squad, the Sardaukar, they're fighting the Atreides. But it's like the Emperor, he can't have any part of it. Like, there could be no evidence that the Emperor was involved. So, like, they don't use... They put the Sar- the Emperor's troops in Harkonnen uniforms. They try to do all their killing, like, by dumping them in the desert. That's how they try and get rid of uh, Paul and Jessica. They're going to feed them to the worms. And so that's how they they catch kinds later and throw them in there. But also he explodes because they put him on um, <laughs> they they put him on like near a 
it's like the new spice that's coming. And yeah, this is right. where it gets spoiled. Yeah, but it explodes as he get eaten by a sandworm. So I imagine it's like it's like he's on a geyser, like a sand geyser. Yeah, it's like Yellowstone. Like, <laughs> he get yeah, and he goes in like zero gravity for a minute, and then like a worm snatches him out of the air, like like a shark jumping out to get a seal. Yeah, That's dude, like how even, even better. By the way, quick side note: the main villain of this movie, I'm mean, not this movie, this book, uh, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, he is mm-hmm. as delightfully evil as his name is silly. Well, I don't think he's evil because. He's just, he's, the only thing that says that he's evil that would suggest it is like... Bro, he's a pedophile. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's the hint (laughs) he's a pedophile. Other than that, he's just stupid, greedy, boastful, and power hungry. He's, he never does something that's out and out evil. I think most people he, would combine all those qualities into evil. Like, I think those are a lot of qualities and characteristics. Just, he's, that, that he's a, he's a bad person, but I don't, I always hate that word evil. Like, it Man, just doesn't. Man, strong, strong uh, take, uh, the defense of the Vladimir uh, Harkonnen. Well, that brings me to like, all right, so Sam, if you could change anything about this book, would you, if there was like a section or anything you could change? Um, I mean, I would change some of the writing stuff, like you said, um, just in terms of like, I want it to be even less specific. Give me, Mm -hmm. give me the least (laughs) amount of specifics as possible. Like, that's what I would change in terms of the plotting. Absolutely not. I, there's nothing, I don't see anything wrong with any of the plotting of this book. Okay. Um, what about you? I know there's something you would. Yeah, I know. I obviously I was leaning in, uh, because I would change the focus of the second book which i feel is largely wasted time of paul linking up with the fremen and getting accepted by them and instead focus on his very obvious foil the fade rotha ah sting Um, yeah so so the baron harkonnen a part of his plan is he's raising basically an heir named fade rotha to he hopes one day to put him as the emperor like he wants a Harkonnen to be on the And he's possibly attracted to him, too, even though it's, like, his nephew. Yeah, but you know what? The uh, the weird thing about that is Fade Rotha, it's, it's explicitly said he's not from uh, the Baron's loins, but he considers him a Harkonnen. He's, gotcha. It's, they never explain his origin. But in many ways, he's supposed to set as Paul's foil. Like, he's Paul if He's Paul evil Paul. He's evil yeah. Paul with all the fighting skills that Paul... He's kind of like breeding his own Quitsock Heterock, like his his kind of weird superhuman person. Only he's yeah. twisted twisted and mentally, you know, deformed, so to speak. Well, no. Fade, Fade Roth is like... I mean, isn't he portrayed by Sting in the sci-fi Yeah, I don't mean mentally thing? deformed. Like, I don't mean he's mentally handicapped. I mean, like, he's a twisted figure. He's pure evil. I, once again, I don't get that. He's, he's like as smart as Paul, but with... Without the guidance of Jessica, like Paul could easily be like a Fade Rotha. I think Fade Rotha is aimless. Do you remember the scene in the gladiator pits for his yes. birthday, mm-hmm. where he basically knows how to base the to make a PR stunt to make him look good by showing mercy to like his opponent or rather his victim in there. Yeah, and then even later on, he goes to attempt to kill the Baron. But he's clumsy at it. Like, his assassination attempt fails. And the only character flaw that Fade Rothis seems to have is that he's a horn dog. Like, he spends <laughs> a lot of time in the harem. 
And that's how the the Baron punishes him for trying to kill him. He's like, we're going to go down to the pleasure chambers now, and you're going to murder every one of the good women in there as I watch. And I was yeah, like... Yeah, you, you have a stronger case for, you know, Fade Rotha being a misguided youth with poor parentage uh, yeah. than you do for the Baron Harkonnen not being, like, pure silly evil. And I love his pure silly evil, but it's silly. It's like, literally, like, the book is open. He's like, I'm going to kill them all. I don't know. I, I dig yeah. it. Yeah. I have no problem with it. But that's what that's the way I would approve it is spend more time on Fade Roth. If if Fade Roth is meant to be a foil to Paul, this was another yeah. great way to raise tension. Sure, we saw him take down You're completely a drugged, right. A drugged up yeah. Atreides captive, but maybe have even though it doesn't make sense because the Baron doesn't want to put him in danger. Give Fade Rotha a reason to be on Arrakis and have him best like a Fremen. Here's have a him here's be a, a guy here's a that... real here's a real niche reference for you. Um, give it the carnival treatment somewhat. Like mm-hmm. if you're gonna have a villain of something, let us see him a lot. If a character is going to have an antagonist that is equal to their power, constantly go back to that person, build up that right. tension, build up that character, so then when they finally do meet, it's an explosion you've been waiting for. Exactly, and it's not. The book ends kind of with them fighting, but and don't the give it away. Time, but yeah, it's abrupt. There's no tension. Well, actually, no. The book's no ending. Tension. The book's ending is incredibly abrupt. Um, of course, ne- yeah. Next and last category, uh, we had talked about this, and I loved it. And it's about Philip K. Dick. We call it the Dick Slip. And yeah. <laughs> the reason is that Philip K. Dick, if you've ever read any of his books, goes on these long tangents in the book where it's clearly no longer the character talking, but is instead uh, just the author ranting. And while there's less of it in this book, there's definitely a lot of Frank Herbert speaking through his characters in it. Uh, were there any moments uh, that you that you could pick out that you thought was uh, old old Frank Herbert giving us the dick slip? I definitely thought it was every single time Paul like entered his like little trances. Because, yeah, there's no question. We're on. We, yeah. we had the same exact answer. All his Cause, trances. Yeah, because Herbert was like a big fan of psilocybin mushrooms, and obviously he was like the guy that was like, "This is great," and he's like, "I have to write about it," and that's why all of it is such a disjointed mess. He's literally trying to explain his mushroom trip to you. Which, yeah, one hundred. I mean. And if any of you listeners have ever done drugs or haven't done drugs, having somebody's experience of doing drugs described to you, if you're not on drugs at the time, it's is the most boring thing in the <laughs> world. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, Frank, we get it. Drugs are cool. <laughs> okay. Here's what I'll say, though, before we wrap up this podcast, okay? Mm-hmm. I love the Dune series. I love the first Dune book. And the first Dune book, exactly as you said, is not sci-fi. It is feudalism in space about oil geopolitics. The second Dune book is still not really sci-fi. It is more feudal politics and sort of what happens when a jihad, when a leader starts a jihad. The third book is still more feudal politics and what happens when heirs take over a kingdom But then you get to the fourth book, and it takes one of the hardest right turns I've ever seen any series of anything take. And the fourth book is actually my favorite book. I'm not saying it's the best book. It's my favorite book. And it is nothing but one literal long dick slip from from, from Frank (laughs) Herbert. And I love it. It is hard sci-fi. The next three books in this series, so you got the first three, which are Dune, Dune Messiah, and Children of Dune. And they're kind of like a royal Game of Thrones style story, even though yeah, I hate mentioning a, Game of Thrones in anything. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I don't like Game of Thrones. I don't like giving Game of Thrones credit for anything, but I just mean it's a monarchical story. Then you mm-hmm. got the next three, which is God Emperor of Dune, which is my favorite one, and then uh, Heretics of Dune and Chapter House Dune, and they are hard, hard sci-fi. And the entire sort of message and overall plot of these books changes drastically as a result of these later stories. Sean, have you read them? Uh, yeah, uh, I... I think i read i read all of the original frank herbert stuff yeah this just the years frank ago. herbert stuff just the because frank stuff. because i got like after reading dune there was like a period of time where i had like a lot of open mm-hmm. time to read and i basically bought all the rest of the frank herbert books and i like devoured them like i can't i could i can mention like one thing i remember but that's too much of a giveaway but i remember only bits and pieces and i liked it so much that i started reading the books that were written by his son which are terrible or I started reading a the a book and about fifty pages of it before I was got it the Butlerian Jihad. Yeah. So here's my point. So this is really important. That's when you realize it's not the plot, but it's the writing. Um, because in fact, the plots of the later books, while I enjoy them, are fucking nuts. But it was when I was reading those later books that I realized I enjoy this guy's writing style so much. Um, yeah. And then and there's many more books. Uh, spin-off books written by Kevin Anderson, who's the real writer of these books, and he's trash, and we can debate him sometime later. He's he's like the really mainstream science fiction writer who gets every franchise. And then Frank Herbert's son, Brian Herbert, who I think is just really providing notes and taking credit, but not actually doing the writing. And they're mm-hmm. talking, they're writing about all the cool stuff that Frank Herbert alluded to, prequel stuff and all this, you know, these other cool plot points, but they're trash. Those books are trash. It just felt so generic. They're written terribly. It felt like voiceless. Right. They're written terribly. And that's why at the end of the day, whether it's movies or books, right, execution matters more than story. It always does. And you can have a great story, but if you can't execute it, nobody's going to care. And I think those those other Dune books, the later ones, are a great example of good writing being what draws you. And then the the prequel and spinoff books by Brian Herbert and Kevin Anderson – being a great example of you can have this this IP, this intellectual property that people adore, but if you suck right at execution, yeah. nobody's going to like it. So that's where I stand. Yeah. I mean, I have a very strict rule with books. Uh, it's like if I get to page 50 and I'm bored of reading it or I don't want to keep reading, I'll just shut the book and throw it away. Like, and as sometimes it even as soon as like page 15, have you ever read any Clive Cussler novels? No. <laughs> oh God. They are the worst. It's literally, it's like adventure books written for the lowest common denominator. It's like he stood there with brown pants and a blue <laughs> shirt and a Dodgers cap because his father took him to the Dodgers game and he was an important scientist, man. Let's listen to him speak. That's it, how it the book is written. It reminds me of those, those books that were all about sports, but they were for kids. They were like the Goosebumps equivalent, but they were just about sports for some reasons. Like I think mm. I remember one of them was called like the Home Run Kid, and it was this one author, and all he did was write sports books. Um, yeah, I mean, look, at the, at the end of the day, um, here's what I was going to say about books like Boring Me. I read a lot of nonfiction and history specifically, and yeah. I'll make sure not to recommend some of these books to you because like there are books I've read which have actually been really boring, and I've continued on with them because I want the information. So like I was really yeah. into Prussia at one point, so I read this book called Iron Kingdom, The Rise and Fall of Prussia. 
and it bored me to tears, but I really wanted this information because I wanted to be able to cite, you know, stuff about Prussia in later historical comparisons I was going to make, but I'll make sure not to ever recommend any of the, any history book I found boring and read strictly mm-hmm. for the subject matter. I will make sure not to recommend to you. Yeah, I mean, I I like um nonfiction books as well but i like it kind of like when they're like a sweeping survey uh there was uh i think it was a book called forgotten kingdoms where it was basically a book about all the little kingdoms that appeared during the medieval ages and up to like the end of the world war ii of like just these small sovereignties that would crop up due to like whatever like global political situation was happening and like how they faded away and people just forgot these nations ever existed and so I like kind of stuff like that where it's like, hey, you want like a, a book about neat stuff? <laughs> yeah. Here it is. And it's it's factually correct. It's been researched, but it's not so under the microscope. Here's here's right. every detail. Like, I don't want that kind of book, but we'll we'll see as we move on and select books. All right, Sean, this was a lot of fun. Uh, Guys, this was the inaugural episode of Full Dusty Jacket, a literary podcast for gentlemen. I hope you enjoy it. If you did enjoy it, please rate and review us on iTunes. That really goes a long way to helping uh, get more listeners for the podcast. And also, Sean, can I reveal uh, the next episode that we're doing now? Are you cool with that? I'm totally fine. Let's go ahead. Okay, so the next one we're doing is Watership Down. I'm currently in the middle of reading that. That was a Sean suggestion to me. So the next episode we're going to be doing is Watership Down. Uh, Sean, that was a blast. Everyone, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening, everybody.